The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. A few weeks ago, Rebecca and I took the kids to uh, one of the Miami Dolphins open practices. It's where you can just show up, you can watch the Dolphins practice. And uh, so we, the, Rebecca and I, our three kids, uh, that's a, it's important to us. We're trying to raise up our kids in the way they should go. It's biblical. So, you know, they, we need to expose them to the dolphins. And so, um, so we take them, and uh, we're sitting in, like, the corner near the end zone. I was really wanting to see um, our lightning-fast receivers against our strong defensive backs. I was wanting to see that showdown. Um, but the thing that I really left, like, that I still remember, like, the best moment of the entire practice was this unexpected moment, and I didn't even realize it was happening until, like, kind of I, I see this commotion. And so we're down by the end zone, like, off to the side, like, in the corner. And the, all the quarterbacks come to the back corner of the end zone, and they get off the sideline. So they're, they're at the end zone, but they're looking this way. So they're like perpendicular to the goalpost. Can you kind of picture what I'm talking about? Okay. They're like just in between these, these two pylons. Here's the whole end zone. They're off the sideline. And the first one goes up and there were, at this point, there were four of them. They're still, you know, vying for uh, second and, and uh, third string QB, but they're going to do a competition where they're going to take the football and they're going to throw it and they're going to try and hit the side of the goalpost. Now, like, it's hard to appreciate, like, how incredible this feat would be if you're not actually there to see and be reminded of the scale, okay? The, the pole of a goalpost is between four to six inches wide, and if they're standing on the sideline, they're throwing it about 70 feet. So they're standing 70 feet back. They're trying to hit a four-inch target um, in, in the air. It's an, it, an incredible feat. So the first guy gets up, and he gets unbelievably close. We're like, man, these guys are, are pros. Then the second guy, then the third guy, Tua. Your Tua. <laughs> My Tua. Our Tua. He, they save him for last. He steps up like this, of course. He steps up and he just drills the side of, of the, of the goalposts. The first one to do it, we all just freak out. It was like we had just scored a touchdown in a game. Like we we're just so excited, okay? Like all the stands go crazy. So then they keep, they keep going in and some make it, some miss it, some miss it, then make it. But Tua, he just keeps drilling the side of the, the, the goalpost just over and over. And by the fourth time, this was the last round, he gets up, and this time I see, we see him kind of talking. We can't hear what he's saying, but he's pointing. And we realize he's not just going to aim for the side of the goalpost. He's going to aim for the end of the crossbar. He's going to aim for that little circle that's about six inches in diameter. And he drops back, and he's hyping up the crowd. And we're all there, spellbound, breathless. Is he going to do it? Is he as accurate as, to, as they all say? And he drops back, and he drills that little circle. And we all go bananas like we want a playoff game. I mean, it was just, it was incredible, okay? And I, I drove away, we were talking to the kids. I was like, man, that was the most incredible part of the whole thing. Like, I've never been so excited. Like, uh, I can't wait for the season. And I'm driving away and like days later, I'm still think, thinking about it and telling all my friends. And I'm like, why did this like blow my mind? Like, just think about this. A dude is throwing an oblong shaped object and hitting a target. Like, why did it melt my face? Like, why was that? <laughs> what was 
so unbelievable. Like, why did that get me so much? Like, I mean, yes, it's incredible. Yes, I don't even think I could make it to the uprights, let alone hit the target. Like, yes, it's something I cannot do. Yes, it's, a dis- it's an incredible display, but what struck me by that so much? And I realized, like, it's the same thing. Like, what drew me in is the same thing. When I go on YouTube and I'm looking for something, but then I see them advertise a video that the title says something like this, eight times messy destroyed a defender and I have to click on the video, okay? It's the same thing that draws me in. Here's what it is. Excellence, really of any kind, it mesmerizes us as humans. It's not like we're like, okay, good. I mean, good, he's good at that. Like, it, we, don't, we don't respond that way. In fact, the more you know, like, the more you know something and, like, know how hard that is and know how excellent it is, you know, like, I can look at a painting and be like, okay. But, like, an artist is like, you don't understand what's happening here. And when they can show me why that's excellent, then I'm like, wow, like, that's incredible. Humans are mesmerized by excellence. And we take that so for granted. Maybe we've never paused and said, like, why is that so mesmerizing? And I think there's a, actually, it's a deeply biblical answer. Because the first thing when the Bible opens up, the first thing that we're exposed to is God at work and his work is excellent. Genesis chapter one, we see God making, he's creating, he's in creating the universe. And God steps back and says, that is good. That is excellent. I think when we see, and then he makes us in his image and he he commissions us to go worship, I think when we see someone doing work with excellence, we're seeing a little glimmer of the image of God, a little hint of the fact that humans were made in the image of God. It's just a little stirring in us that is ultimately longing for the ultimate excellent being of God himself, and we're drawn in. This this dynamic of excellence with humanity is very deeply biblical and very and, and critical, and it has a, it, it plays out very significantly in what we spend our lives doing. It, it is very critical to how we spend our days, how we work. I want you to see a, uh, a scripture that speaks to that. We're working through the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to encourage you to open to Genesis chapter 39, Genesis chapter 39. We're going to begin in verse 1. Genesis 39, starting in verse 1, and we're, we're going to take a look at, at his story. Here's what he says. Here's the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Okay, let's pause right there. If if, um, you're just joining us in this series, let me get you caught up on this person, Joseph. Joseph is the son of uh, a man by the name of Jacob. God renamed Jacob Israel and 
um, Joseph is being groomed to take over Israel or Jacob's business, his household. He's being groomed, groomed to do that. And his other 11 brothers, uh, or his other, his 10 older brothers, I should say, are jealous of Joseph. And so they conspire to get rid of Joseph. The way they do that is they actually sell him into slavery. He gets picked up by this uh, caravan of Ishmaelites who are traveling down to Egypt. They take Joseph down to Egypt, and then they sell him to a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar is a very high-ranking individual in Egypt, and uh, Joseph becomes Potiphar's slave. And you can imagine, I mean, everything is going well in Joseph's life. There's a complete turnaround. We know that Joseph is, is not superhuman. He must have been wrestling with God. What's happening, God? I don't understand. How, how, what, do, what is this? Like, why did I end up here? Like, this is terrible. Like, you, I, I, was, I was on the rise, and now I'm the lowest of the low. And it says that God was with him. And this is what's so key, and honestly, it's so beautiful for us to see. It doesn't say anything about Joseph's like devotional life. Now, we, we assume just by the godliness that's built in him that they, there was something going on there. But we don't know anything about his prayer life or him meditating on Scripture or what his times of praise and worship were like as he was singing hymns to God. We don't know what his private life was with God. We, we can bet that there was one, we, but we don't know. The Scripture doesn't alert us to what was happening there. It alerts us to a particular way God shows up in Joseph's life. It was at his work. Because the bottom line is Joseph got there probably completely confused, discouraged, crushed, demoralized, doing a job. He had no desire whatsoever to do. But the bottom line is Monday came and he had to get up and go to work. And that's where God met him. And it said that God met him through his work and everything that he did succeeded. Now, what we looked at is, um, this is a little bit of a recap. We, we actually went through Genesis 39 um, in part one last week, and we're going back through this, and we're going to look at a different aspect of this part of the story. But one of the things we talked about last week is so often Christians, we completely compartmentalize our, our work and our faith. It's like we have the spiritual side of our life. You know, we have like, I pray and I read the Bible and I go to church and I serve at my church and I, I've got all the spiritual things that I do. And then I've got like Monday through the rest of the Monday through Saturday. Like I've got like my work side and this is like the sacred holy part and this is like the secular part. But that's not what we, we look all the way back to Genesis 1. Again, we open up with God at work and then he commissions us to be at work. And this is all before sin comes into the world. And what we talked about last week is work is hardwired and work is holy. God cares about our work. There's a special relationship humans have with their work. We reflect God in our work. And so when, when, when to see jo God meeting Joseph at work, sometimes that might catch us as a surprise because we compartmentalize that. This is kind of the everyday stuff that I do. This is the sacred stuff. There's no such thing as a sacred and a secular. Jesus has reign over all of it. It's all, sec it's all sacred. Joseph goes to work, and God meets him there. Let's keep going. This is what happens. Let's pick it up in verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him. 
Did you catch that? His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was all that he. Um, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. I, I want you to notice this. Potiphar didn't just notice Joseph. God is blessing everything Joseph is doing, and it says Potiphar didn't just say, "Wow, this guy's incredible." It was to the degree that Potiphar had to admit. God is obviously with him. Joseph's excellence didn't just uh, cause Potiphar to see Joseph. Joseph's excellence drew Potiphar to notice God's presence with Joseph. Potiphar knew that God was with Joseph. Second thing I want you to notice is that as God's hand is on Joseph, and Joseph is just getting promoted and promoted and promoted till he's basically Potiphar's chief of staff. He runs, Joseph runs everything for Potiphar. I want you to notice what it says. The text makes it explicit. God doesn't just, it's not just blessing Joseph. It's blessing the entire household of Potiphar. Don't miss this. Joseph, it's not just Joseph is like, man, praise God. Look, this is great. I've got a higher salary. I've, got a, uh, I've been promoted. Man, this is awesome. It's not just for Joseph's sake. All of Potiphar's household is being blessed because of Joseph, because of his excellence. Pay close attention to that. Okay, now here's what happens next. We talked about this a little bit last week. Enter in now the scandal. Here's what happens in, in uh, verse six. Potiphar's wife relentlessly hits on Joseph. And not like in just kind of a flirtatious way. She's actually demanding that Joseph sleep with her. And she's actually trying to leverage her positional advantage over Joseph to coerce him to do what she wants him to do. Joseph draws the line, says, I will not do this. And he resists her day after day after day after day. And finally, she's had enough of being rejected. So she sets up the, the this is the day she will have her way. She dismisses everyone out of the house. She, Joseph, she waits for Joseph. Joseph comes into the house. She grabs him by the garment and demands that, that he sleep with her. And at this point, he realizes like she's not going to take no for an answer. So he basically wriggles out of his cloak and takes off running, even though she's basically making that demand and assaulting him. She's so rejected at this point that she takes the cloak that she still has in her hands and she goes to, uh, calls all the servants and she makes a big public display of this, even before she tells her husband. And she says, look, Joseph tried to assault me, make demands on me, and uh, he, the, he's trying to humiliate us. Catch this. She makes the accusation against Joseph of the very thing she did to him. You follow this? Potiphar hears of this, throws Joseph into the prison. This has been the trajectory of Joseph's life. He's on the rise, crushing defeat lower than he ever thought. 
He's on the rise now even higher than anything he could have imagined. And now he's even lower again. He's down in the prison. But the Lord is with Joseph. Joseph did nothing wrong. He did everything right. This is a complete injustice. But the Lord is with Joseph. How? In his devotional life, in his praise and worship times, is it singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs? Is it he's, he's thinking about meditating on the scripture with good, you know, godly fellowship with other believers? It's not what it says. Probably those were pieces of it. But this is what the text wants us to see. This is what God wants us to see. I want you to jump down to verse 20. This is how the chapter ends. And Joseph's master took him and put him into, into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. How? And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who are in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the who? The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Here's what I want you to see. God shows up with Joseph in his work. We talked about last week. Why? Because the Lord cares about your work. Your work is a calling on his life. If it's, uh, if it's being called by God and it's for God, it's a calling on your life. But I want you to see specifically, as we're going back through this story, I want you to see this dynamic. How did God show up at Joseph's work? God caused the things that Joseph did to succeed. God caused Joseph to do his work excellently, and that excellence accomplished a few things. It, it caused those who were in charge of Joseph to notice God's presence over Joseph. It caused everything all around Joseph to be blessed as God worked through his excellence. And Joseph gained greater and greater influence um, at, because of his excellence. Okay, let's bring this over into our life. How does this play out into our, the fact that we're gonna go to work on Monday or we're gonna pick up our, our life, you know, wh wherever it is, a police station, a school, a fire station, maybe working from home or, or maybe being a, a stay-at-home parent with your kids or maybe it's going to an office or going to a coffee shop or uh, going out and doing landscaping or cleaning pools or working in a toll booth or whatever it is. How should we expect these dynamics to play out on Monday? Um, I, I was thinking through this, and I was thinking maybe, maybe the best way to talk about this, I just, I'm going to be a real straight shooter. From uh, over just the last few years of um, not only just being a pastor, but um, you know, even before as a pastor, having a job, and then um, talking to people at, through our relationships at church, just in all different types of jobs and all different types of positions. You know, we've got people who are just starting out their career or people who are starting a new career and find themselves kind of on the bottom rung again, or other people that are, you know, managers or business owners and, and, and everything in between. People work in cubicles or, or whatever it may be, office buildings or whatever it may be, classrooms. 
there's a reoccurring thing that is actually just, it surprised me at first over the years, but I think I, I, I understand maybe a little bit why. But, but here it is. I'm just going to be a straight shooter. Religious people tend to be, not always, but tend to be either some of the best employees or some of the worst. Religious people tend to be either some of the best employees or some of the worst. What do I mean by that? I mean like a, a, a conversation that I've had with, I mean, I can't tell you how many people. They're like, yeah, well, how's it going to work? Yeah, well, this and this is going on. And how's it living out your faith? Oh, it's great. You know, are there any other Christians that, that, that you work with? Yeah. Oh, well, is that a good thing? Not really. There's some of them that I like, they're great and they were hardworking, but there's others that it's like, man, they're like, I'm kind of like, you know, they're not respected by the team. They, they actually bring everything down. They don't do good work. It's just, it's hard. And then it's like, then they're, they're, they're talking about their faith. And I honestly, it kind of actually wish they wouldn't. Or it's um, the person that's like, um, they've got an, uh, they had a brand new job. Like, hey, how's the new job going? And at first, like, oh, it's amazing. And, and I really love my boss and this and that. And a few months later, hey, how, how's it going? Oh, my boss is the worst. And you're like, oh, really? I'm sorry to hear that. Like, what's going on? Well, and, and really what's demoralizing is when I first was, went to work for them, like I found, like, uh, I found out that he or she was a believer. And I'm like, oh, I have so much in common with them. And then now that I've, I've had to suffer under their leadership for the last four or five months or six months, like they're one of the worst bosses I had. I don't know how to compute that. Like we're both believers. Like I, I thought they would be one of my, my best bosses. Or, a, or a, a business owner that I talked to not long ago, and they're like, you know, I, early on when I first started the business, I loved hiring Christians, and I assumed that there would be this kind of this, this work ethic in, built in, and some have been great. Some have been not great at all, and honestly, it was a little demoralizing for me about my faith. Maybe you've had a similar experience before, so just be a straight shooter. Religious people tend to be some of the best employees or some of the worst, and I think there is, there's a reason why. And I think it might help us. I think what's, the reason why is because religion as a whole, it stirs up self-righteousness that cannot be unseated except for the gospel. And so where you see a life built on self-righteousness, that will inevitably lead to so many of the things that make someone a hard person to work with. Whereas someone is building their life on the gospel, it inevitably floods into their life all of the things that will lead to excellence. Well, let me define my terms. What do I mean by self-righteousness? Religion is basically all religions. All religions are based, basically built on this framework. Here's the list of things to do. Here's the list of things not to do. And here's the list of things to think and believe. So if you think right, 
You do the right things. You avoid not doing. You avoid doing the wrong things. If you think right, do the right things. Don't do the wrong things. Then you will make it. Make it to wherever. And it depends on the religion. Make it to paradise, nirvana, heaven, the afterlife. You'll be, you'll be accepted by God. You will then be righteous. Like this is how you will be right before God. You do the, you do the right things. Avoid the wrong things. And believe and think correctly. You have the right convictions. If you do those things... If you accomplish those things, you will be righteous. You will be right before the God of that religion. That's just kind of a basic framework. And so you swap out different nuances of religious ritual or different nuances of morality or different nuances of doctrine. But essentially, these are the things. If you do those things yourself, you will be righteous. That leads to self-righteousness. Jesus said the absolute opposite of that. He said, let me just cut to the chase. You can't make it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the, the religious things you do, the bad things you don't do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have you know, all of your thoughts aligned and you, you have all of these things. The bottom line is you and I have sin in our lives. What are you saying? I'm all cleaned up. I, I've avoided the big sins, but Jesus was, was just cut right to the chase. He said, look, you think that you're, you're clean because you haven't murdered, but there's hate in your heart. You think you're righteous because you haven't stolen, but you've got envy and jealousy and you covet. You see things, you're like, I've got to have that. There's sin in your heart. And the standard is not other people. The standard is God. And so all, none of us are making it. And Jesus says, so what you need is you need someone to take your place, to take all of the wrath of God onto them so that there's no wrath for you. And Jesus said, I am here to do that. I'm here to fulfill all the things you can't do. And I'm here to take all of your sin on myself and be punished in your place. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect, the only person who was actually righteous. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. God came to rescue you and me. And they nailed him to a tree. They nailed him to a cross, brutalized his body. It's almost unthinkable what they did to his physical body. And that is not a fraction to the spiritual suffering of his soul as he took all of the shame and guilt and filthiness of your sin and my sin on himself and then absorbed the wrath of God, the separation of the Father and the Son. He absorbed the ultimate suffering of the wrath of God and descended into hell. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Here's who your Jesus is. So powerful. So righteous. So strong so noble, such a champion for all the universe that he burst through sin and death itself, came out of the grave on the third day and won a victory over all of sin and death for you and for me. Can we just give Jesus praise? That's who your Jesus is. That's the gospel. Okay, church, here's what self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness is this. I did it. I think right and I live right. I did it. The gospel is, he did it. I did nothing. He did it. That's the gospel. 
Okay, let's play this out at work. If I'm playing, if I am building my life on on a self-righteousness, which is all religion, and it sneaks its way into Christianity, we have to wash over our lives and our minds and our souls with the gospel. We We have to cleanse our lives with the gospel because we have this bent towards self-righteousness. And we can and we can go back there. We can know the gospel, we can be actually saved, but be building a life on self-righteousness. And the New Testament's constantly saying, no, that, that's, you're getting dragged back to your old way. No, the, build your life on the gospel, on the grace that you have. And so Christians, we can be living our life, even though we know the gospel and we're saved by the gospel, we've constructed a life built on self-righteousness. And that can play out in our lives. And watch how it plays out at work. So I go to work and I'm, it's built on, on self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? I have to prove to myself that I am good enough but I can't compare myself to the actual standard, which is God. Book of Leviticus says, be holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is the standard. But if we truly held God, our standard to God, we would be crushed. And so if I'm trying to operate like I can do it, I'm not going to compare myself to God. Who am I going to compare myself to? everybody around me. And so there's a little piece of me that feels gratified, maybe, if I'm building my life on self-righteousness. When I can look down my nose at someone else and say, oh, did you see what they posted on Instagram? This is what they do over the weekend. Man, did you see what they do? I would never act like that. Do you see? I mean, look at them. Like, I mean, that is not how a good person, but I don't do that. I have to compare myself to feel righteous. I have to say, okay, that's what, that, that, that's what they do that I would never do. But then they also don't do the good things that I do. You know, they're, they're not, they, don't, they don't do all the praying that I do and the fasting that I do and the church stuff that I do. And they don't have the Bible memorized like I do. Like they don't have do all the good religious things that I do. And I need that because I need to build my righteousness up. And they don't think like I do. Their doctrine's a little, you know, they don't think rightly. They don't understand the Bible. They're, they're, they're a little bit off. They're, they're off on how they engage culture. They're off on how they think politically. They're off this and that. They don't think the way I think, but my thinking's correct. My actions are correct. I don't do the wrong things. And so what is self-righteousness? I have to have superiority. I have to, I, I have to do that or I'll be crushed. So I compare myself to others. So with that superiority, then here's what comes next. Entitlement. I'm not like them. I deserve to be given more than them. So then I have, I have superiority. Then I have this sense of like, I deserve. Wait, I'm not getting that promotion? Wait, I'm not getting that account? Wait, I'm not getting what I deserve? And now I'm walking around with a chip on my shoulder of all the things that I deserve. And I'm becoming very self-centered because I'm just looking out for me, because I'm righteous. They shouldn't get it because their life's a wreck. My life is together. I should get it. It's very, it's entitled and it's self-centered. And then the last part is not only my I'm superior, I'm entitled and, and self-centered, but then that, that leads me to the, the third thing, which is I am a very defensive person. I can receive no critique because a critique is not helping me improve my performance. Critique is making me feel not righteous enough. Your critique is an attack on me. So a bad review, 
a bad customer feedback, uh, a, a, a coworker saying something, really any kind of tough feedback I will wiggle out of, I will explain away, I'll blame someone else, I'll, I'll, or I'll just attack the messenger. And I'm a defensive person. But think of the tragedy of that. If I walk around self-righteous, here's how this plays out at work. I repel other people. If I'm entitled, I think I deserve. I'm not working hard for something. I think I already deserve it. And um, so I'm not really going to work at my full capacity because I'm entitled. And if I'm not, if I'm defensive, then I'm not growing and I'm stunted. That's a recipe for not being a very excellent employee. But now, like, let's let the gospel wash over it. Let's start again. I'm, I'm not superior. I'm humbled. I needed to be rescued. I couldn't live right. I, I just flat needed God to come and save me. You know, some people will say Christianity is just a crush for, uh, crutch for, for the weak. You know, if someone says that it's just a crutch, they don't understand Christianity. It is far more than a crutch. I'm dead. I need more than a crutch. It's resuscitating me to life. That's what the gospel is. It humbles me to the core. I needed to be rescued by God. That doesn't make me then entitled. It doesn't make me, I'm not superior, I'm humbled. Jesus had to die for me to be saved. The greatest treasure of the universe had to be spent to ransom me. Like I, I expended the blood of Jesus for me. I am so humbled by what he did. And then not only am I humbled, like I'm entering in with this spirit of not self-centeredness, not entitlement, like I'm, I, I enter in with a spirit of gratitude, of generosity, like I look at the people around me and I'm like, these are souls that are, the, that are so important to God that he sent his son to die for them. Like if that's how important humans are, then like that's how important they are to me, if that's how important they are to God. And so I enter in with a spirit of, of generosity, a spirit of how can I serve, a spirit of how can I lift up those around me, a spirit of it's not all about me and what I take away. It's, man, how can I serve and give back? The gospel says I've already been given everything. I've got heaven waiting for me. And I've got the Father watching over and working everything together for my good. Like, I, it's, I deserve not, what do I deserve? I deserve an eternity in hell. That's what I deserve. I mean, if I was just judged by today, and we're not even halfway through the day yet, what I deserve is hell. And so I, I think about what I deserve. Man, I've already, I deserve the worst, and yet I've been given everything. So I give, I, this life I can expend, I'm, I'm humbled. I'm generous and self-sacrificing. And then, of course, I'm teachable. When someone gives me feedback, whether it's a, a friend or a foe, I'm not like shocked. Like, I, you, you think I have a flaw? I have no flaws. I'm surprised. I'm caught off guard by critical feedback. Like, I've never, do you know who you're talking to? I have no flaws. I'm like, the gospel tells me it's not that I have flaws. I'm really messed up, according to the gospel. 
I'm polluted, okay? Like I'm in a bad place. So then I can walk into feedback and it's not like an attack on me. I already know how bad I need Jesus. It's not an attack on me. It's a gift of grace. Whether it's from an enemy who's trying to harm me, you send me that weapon. If it's an honest critique, that's now a gift to me because I know I've got flaws and how I can get better. Thank you, Lord. That's stung, but that was a gift of grace. And especially from a friend, someone God has placed in my life, iron sharpening iron, when the sparks fly and I say, thank you, God, you're making me more like you. I, I can receive that. And now with that kind of, I'm teachable. Now think about how that plays out in my life. The level of excellence that that plays out. Now I can grow. And someone who's teach. I mean, if you have nothing else, but you're teachable, you are on a path to excellence. And the gospel gives you that, that foundation. Let me quickly give you three things. How does this play out in our life practically? Number one, excellence displays the Lord's presence. Excellence displays the Lord's presence. Potiphar saw Joseph's excellence and realized it was the Lord. Christian, can I just encourage you? Let the lead off of your witness be your excellence. Because that is, that is, that is a, operating in the image of an excellent God. Excellence is a marker of God being at work in you. It lifts up the name of the Lord when you're excellent. Let me just go to point number two. It's this. Excellence impacts the entire community. You notice that it was the entire the entire household of Potiphar that was impacted by Joseph's excellence. Can I encourage you when you go to work, it's not just about what you get out of it. Your promotion is not just for, for, the, for what it's doing for you and for your career. He's placed you there to lift up the shalom of the whole city. This is how what you do Monday through Saturday links to the city being transformed. Because as Christians are sprinkled like, like salt throughout the city, we have better schools, we have better, we have better industries, we have better police stations, we have better fire stations, we have, we have a, a better economy, we have better government, we have justice and righteousness. As you are going to work with excellence and the Holy Spirit is empowering you to do your job well, that is part of how the city gets transformed. Here's number three. Excellence leads to greater influence. Christian, let me just, this is what it says in Proverbs 22. Just listen to this. This is God's word to you. He says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Here's the principle. The principle is God wants to give more influence in your life for justice and righteousness, but he's not going to bypass your excellence. Joseph didn't show up to work late every day and get promoted. Joseph was excellent. God empowered him to be excellent. And he, God used his excellence to position Joseph to have influence. It's a biblical principle of how he wants to do that. Okay, I want you to turn your attention to the screens. Check out this video of some City Rev uh, family members at work. Check this out. So working in a school is a job that we all get to do. It's an opportunity. 
And whether you are directly in the classroom, whether you are working in the cafeteria, whether you are working in facilities, we get to impact the lives of a, of a child. My day starts off at the station. Uh, we're sorting boxes that have come on off of uh, flights. My route is about 28 minutes from the station. So once I arrive to my area, I just start delivering one after one, one box after another or envelope depending on, 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 the, on the stop. My style of leadership is very much being a servant leader. I am primarily a problem solver and so whatever problems are arising that's where um, I step in. Our success as a school is our success as a school because of every component. God will use you in your role. I like to serve as the fragrance of Jesus everywhere that I go. And so that's obviously doing your work with excellence. I am a different principal today than I was eight years ago. Every Sunday helps you be a better person in life and at work Monday through Saturday. I remember when I was interviewed at FedEx, they, they, they asked me, <laughs> It was funny, they asked me, why should we hire you? And I said, it'd be a mistake not to, because I'd be the best driver you guys would have ever seen. And, and it kind of, it kind of, the, this particular manager that was interviewing me, he, uh, it kind of caught him off guard because like, this guy's uh, think, who he thinks he is. And I, and I reminded, I had to remind them, I, I'm like, I'm not like everyone else. And not because of me personally, because of the God in me. I always try to think to myself, as, 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 a, as a child of God, um, if Christ was the one doing this, how would he do it? Even if, if he wasn't going to interact with anybody, being alone, how would he be driving? And how would he um, deliver these packages? And I try my best, um, you know, again, no one's seeing it, but when I come in and deliver a package, I place it very neatly um, in, in a corner or in an area that, that, that uh, no one can see. Um, obviously to be benefit the customer. And many times we will feel like aliens in this world. We might be the only ones doing things a certain way. And that should be a pat on the back to say, you know what, I'm living my life in a biblical way. And so I understand that I might be the only one doing it. And that is why. And in that, I feel that that's worship. That's worship because, because I'm not doing anything outside of God's will. I understand that he's with me and he's expecting me to act the way he would if he was the one doing my route. FedEx may come and go, but God is the only constant in my life. And again, because I know who I'm working for, they can add 10 more things to, to me that they probably wouldn't to someone else. But instead of overwhelming me, that's 10 more opportunities to reach other people. If I'm out there a little longer, you know, instead of being upset about it, what if God wants me out there a little longer because there's someone that I'm supposed to cross paths with for the kingdom? As a principal, there's a lot of behind the scenes activity that happens to making a successful school work. And when things occur that are completely out of my control, I use it as a moment to show those non-believers around me what my God can do. And to be a witness to that and to bring people to the sideline and say, 
Do you see this? This was God's work. You know that as, as much power as I have as a principal, there are so many things out of my control. That's only God's work doing that. And that is one of the most powerful and impactful parts of my profession that's humbling to see God using me in that way, to have him include me in his master plan is just so amazing and humbling. If I were to speak to a believer that's confused about where they're at, whether employment is of God or not, I do believe that you're exactly where God wants you to be right now at this moment. Whether you like it or not, this is where God has you. There are so many people that tend to disregard their work because they feel, I don't like it, this must not be of God. But the reality is that that's where He has you. If you are a believer, God didn't make a mistake to place you where you're at. So I would say you need to find why God has you there. Because I'm pretty sure, you know, if, if you're a secretary, you know, if you're a driver like me, if you're a, a CEO of a company, we interact with people. We're supposed to be His voice, His eyes and ears. And you can't, I, I can't imagine someone saying to themselves, God doesn't want me here. Are there people? If they're people, then there's something that, you, there's something that you can do. So I would say to anyone, stop for a moment and ask yourself, why does God have you where He has you? Amen. Good word. As you're going to wherever you're going tomorrow, you know that the Lord is with you. Amen. Whatever it is. You're right on schedule for His plan for your life. And whatever you do, He wants you to do it to His glory. What was the great work that He did? Here's just His work. I mean, we've heard the story of Joseph. It's, maybe you can relate. He's being accused of the, actual, the thing he's actually a victim of. He's actually the victim. And yet he was accused of that by the perpetrator. And he's getting all the punishment for the crime that he's the victim of. But imagine that, that frustration. But that's just pointing to someone who's greater than Joseph. Because you're, just as Joseph, he traded places with Potiphar's wife unjustly. Your Jesus traded places with you. He took, the, he took the sins he didn't do that ultimately when we commit them, just like Joseph said, how could I do this and sin against God? When we, all of our sin, all of your sin, past, present, and future is ultimately against God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, traded places with you. And he took, he loves you that much that for the joy set before him, he took the cross, despised its shame, but was obedient to the God the Father. And he did that because he loves you. That's the Jesus who's going with you tomorrow on Monday. Let's pray.
you're here and maybe you say, look, I, I think I've built a life on self-righteousness, not on the gospel. I'm not even sure I've ever put my faith in the gospel before. I've always thought that I'm earning heaven just through that, the Christian framework of things to do and to think. I just want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to reject religion and embrace the gospel and build my life on the gospel, not on self-righteousness. If that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer wherever you're at. Maybe you've been in church all your life, but it's been a framework of self-righteousness, not a framework of the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus as your salvation today. Let me lead you in this quiet prayer right there in your seat. Just say, Jesus, I will no longer try to earn my salvation by acting like a Christian. I embrace the gospel. It's not what I do. It's what you did that saves me. And now you are the Lord over my life. You are the king. I will follow you with everything that I do. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then, here's what I want to encourage you to do before you leave. Go to the guest services table in the front lobby and they're going to celebrate with you and they're going to give you a Bible. So if you put your faith in Jesus, go to the front lobby. Um, if you're watching online, go to cityrev.org faith. Just grab your phone real quick. Go there, fill out a couple questions so that we can mail you a Bible as our gift. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.